0: pilot episode of Entocast, a brand new insect podcast where myself, Liam, and me, Nick, are going to talk all about insects.
1: We're a couple of PhD researchers from the University of Birmingham. I work on pollinator species, and I work a bit with neonicotinoids, which are those pesticides you hear a lot about.
0: And I'm working on how insects are going to respond to climate change in woodlands. And this is a podcast just sort of about general insect news, a couple of insect facts
1: and things, and for our first show, we're going to talk about the insect Oscars. We've categorised different areas where insects can strive to be the best, and we've picked some winners.
0: I think uh, a kind of logical starting place is what's the biggest insect? Because people often ask me this, it's not as straightforward as you think. So I was thinking, for uh, biggest, if we stick to mass, because we have lots of different dimensions in insects where they could be long or they could have a big wingspan. So I think we'll get to those later. Let's go for the uh, the adult stage, the imago, um, just as kind of a starting point. Um, I know that some, some insects are actually larger as a larva because they may not feed as an adult. So they, all their energy and their resources, they need to store as fats during the larval stages. Um, so I've got some nominations that I'd like to put forward. Go for it. I'll critique these nominations as they come. <laughs> Most of the largest insects, uh, in terms of mass, have been recorded from beetles from Africa and from South America. So I have beetles of the Megasoma genus and the Goliathus genus. Wow, Goliathus had to be in there. It's in the name, isn't it? Goliath beetle. (laughs) If that's not one of the biggest, I don't know what's happening. And uh, slightly different, I believe this is a type of longhorn beetle, Mm -hmm. uh, Titanus oh titanus giganteus
1: is yep. that the one yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, again it's in the name so what have you got as
0: the very biggest then well the largest recorded it's this uh, of- <laughs> <laughs> it's a difficult one this all it? goes to say with how difficult it is to actually measure these things because we have things like individual variation within a species yeah so just because a species might be the largest if we haven't actually weighed a specimen from that and you know it would probably have to be a do we weigh a fresh specimen or do yep. we weigh a dried-out specimen? So the largest confirmed <laughs> weighed mass of an adult insect I have as the giant wetter, Dynacrida heterancifer, which came in at a whopping 71 grams. You see, that doesn't sound
1: like a lot, but I think comparing to other insects, that's quite a lot. Because, um, for example, I work with bees and they weigh... I think, less than a tenth of a gram, so that's about 700 times more heavy than that, <laughs> which is quite big. I've also got a charming picture um, of some of these giant scarabs, and there's a mustachioed man behind it, and basically, these beetles are about as big as his head. That's sort of the context
0: I can give you for how big 71 grams is. Good to see uh, strong showing on the facial hair from the entomologist there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is, that is probably the
1: largest adult stage but, in terms of the largest insect period, i've got it as the larval stage of the goliath beetle, ah because because it's its larval stage it's actually going to get smaller as an adult, and the goliath beetle is also already pretty huge. so <laughs> the larval stage is even bigger than that, so what that's what I've got
0: as the biggest, but I accept your adult as the biggest there, and there. Uh, also, I believe that some of these very large adult beetles, the, the larval stage, have never actually been found, let alone weighed. So there could be potential for there to be giant larvae somewhere out in the the deepest, darkest of rainforests.
1: Well, I think that's one of the things about entomology altogether. Like, there's a lot of undiscovered. Well, there's a lot of undiscovered species in biology generally, but I think in entomology particularly. There's a lot of species out there that we don't know of because insects are kind of small. We don't tend to notice them that and much. And there's a lot of them. And there's a <laughs> heck of a lot of them. They're the most specios group of animals, I believe. Got a couple of other things in this largest thing because I was trying to work out what the largest was. And I think, like you said, going for mass is probably the best way forwards because uh, that's kind of hard to argue with. Um, but then again, there is a lot of inter- individual variation, so there may be like a massive beetle somewhere. But I've uh, found some information on the longest species, and I don't think this will surprise anyone particularly. Uh, it's a stick insect. I caught a stick insect, the source I actually used called it a walking stick. I believe that's the American name. Is it? Okay, I couldn't take that name seriously because <laughs> I was imagining like a literal like cane
0: or something like
1: walking around.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, no, quite a lot of my American colleagues uh, started talking about walking stick and I wondered, you know, are they maybe not so good at moving around in the field? <laughs> Order Phasmida um, and the biggest one was a
1: species called Pharnacea ceratipis and this was 55.5 centimetres long or for anyone of an imperial persuasion, about 22 inches. So, it's pretty damn long. Like, that is, what, about two foot, like, length of your arm? That's a long, long stick insect.
0: Yeah, I think I probably had the same source as you, I I also (laughs) have. So, it's probably one of the more easier um, morphological characteristics to measure, because it is literally going from the head to the... Well, I think it's the tip of the tar side, actually. Yeah,
1: that's what they said on the uh, site I was looking at. Probably a good point to mention that I should probably thank my source, which is the Book of Insect Records uh, from the University of Florida. And I'm getting the impression that we may have used the same source. (laughs) (laughs) I also uh, looked at the biggest wingspan as well because I wasn't content with the longest and the heaviest. So I looked at the biggest wingspan as well. And this was actually really hard to work out. So... They think the biggest ever, ever, ever was probably an extinct species of not quite a dragonfly, but almost a dragonfly. When you're looking at the Carboniferous area, and I think the Cretaceous as well, there were these gigantic uh, dragonflies, and one of them was called Meganeura monii, and one was called Meganeuropsis permania. Those, they reckon, were the biggest wingspan that
0: ever existed, because uh, they were about two foot long, which is enormous. Really. Yeah, absolutely massive. I think um, they are sometimes called griffin flies. And one of the reasons that they were so big was because back then in general, insects were a lot larger, partly due to the uh, higher concentration of atmospheric oxygen. Um, so there's a good chance the heaviest insects ever also existed during this super oxygenated period. The larger it gets, the higher the percentage of its internal body area it has to devote to having these breathing apparatus, these tubercles. Oh, really? Um, and you get to a point where over a certain size at current atmospheric oxygen, so much of the insect would have to be devoted to these breathing tubes. They'd have no space for any of the other <laughs> organs they might need. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big fan of organs. I like to have a couple. Just
1: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's always nice when you have spares as well, like yeah. kidneys.
0: <laughs>
1: but in terms of actually existing still species or extant species, I got the biggest wingspan was Phyzania a gripper, and that was twenty-eight centimeters. But then, that's the biggest, like wing from, tip to from wing wing tip. wing tip to wing tip, the biggest wing area is either the Atlas moth or the Hercules moth. So it was very confusing to
0: work out what had the biggest wings. <laughs> I think it, it kind of goes to show, due to the variety in morphology, um, all the shapes are slightly different. So yeah. you know, which point do we measure from? No, exactly. It, same with the length. I mean, with some of these beetles have big horns going off the the front of their face. So do we measure from the tip of the horn? Yeah. Do we measure from the eyes?
1: No, exactly. And when I was talking about the longest insects as well, that was one particular example. Not all of them are that long. So is it really the longest insect? If it's not, it's average that that's long. It's just the longest individual was that long. Mm. Does that make it the longest insect in the world? I'm not quite sure. So it was very confusing I'm going to go for wingspan for the biggest wings just because that is the easiest to measure because I think if you get into wing area there's a whole other thing so I think Bisonia Acropina with its wingspan and 28cm is the one I'm going to go for
0: I guess logically from here, we've gone from largest. Should we go to smallest? Go for it. I didn't actually have this category because I picked categories that I thought were most interesting. And for some reason, largest was, but smallest wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I chose smallest because I find it really interesting that um, obviously some features of cells are limited in how small they can get. Yeah. So the cells are still going to be roughly the same size. Yeah. So in order for the insects to actually get that much smaller evolutionary, they have to really streamline their whole anatomy. Okay. Um, which leads us on to the measurements of uh, some of the smallest. And these belong to... It's got to be an aphid or nan, surely. No, uh, actually, they're types of wasps, uh, sometimes called fairy flies. And these are absolutely minuscule. And their life cycle uh, is based on them being egg parasitoids. They're not parasitoids of the adults. They're parasitoids of the eggs, which is usually the smallest life history. Yeah. Um, um, part of the life cycle. So they'll find the eggs and then they'll lay their own minuscule eggs inside these eggs where they'll hatch and they'll feed on the eggs and use the kind of egg shell, as you like, as a lovely little safe place to live. You say a lovely little safe place to live. It's sort of like horrifying where it's just eating that insect (laughs) from the inside.
1: But I guess, yeah, just sheerly by the law of conservation of energy, they can't be that big. If they're producing their young on something that small, then the insects themselves
0: can't be that big. Yeah. (laughs) So, how big are these? So, these are in the region of around 130 to 170 micrometers.
1: A thousand uh, micrometers is one millimeter, and then we've got a thousand millimeters in a meter, so then you said they're 180 micrometers? Wow, they're less than the 20th of a millimeter.
0: That is crazy, crazy small. I'm gonna need to find a picture of this. So, I just find it because I think something like a neuron. In order for a impulse to travel across a neuron and across a synapse, it's going to be you know limited in size. So they must have really sim- streamlined kind of. I don't want to use the word simplified, but you yeah. know, kind of. I'm almost perfected. wondering. Well, I, bet, I can't imagine anyone's made this count because it would be ridiculous.
1: But I'm always wondering, like, how many cells like these insects <laughs> yeah. have? Because they must
0: not have many <laughs> <laughs> if they're that small. They're kind of cool because they do have wings as well. They have um, wings. Yeah, and they, they can fly around. But because they're so sure, small... they're just get taken up by the gathers well, There, Yeah, you, you, <laughs> I think the majority of their dispersal is on wind currents and the wings are just literally to get them up into these air currents. Oh, amazing. But they're, they're so small they don't need a membrane to generate lift. They just kind of have this stalk with these little hair-like projections which are just to create an uplift in this tiny, tiny size to get them where they need to go. So, uh, have you got any suggestions for the next category?
1: Well, I did one which I thought would be suitable because this is an audio type of media, and I looked at the loudest, ah. although I could not find a single recording of the loudest species of insects. Ah. I found a recording of one that people think might be louder, Basically, not many insects have been measured in terms of their loudness, so it's actually quite hard to find. So the loudest recorded insect is the African cicada Brevisana brevis, which is also, as I discovered through Googling, a heavy metal band. Um, (laughs) Brevisana (laughs) brevis* Makes sense. It's quite a metallic sound. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. But uh, this is the loudest recorded one, the African cicada, and it produces a sound from 50 centimetres away, so half a metre that is 106.7 decibels, which is... How does that compare to... Well, that's about the sound of a jet taking off. (laughs) Um, So it's really, really loud. But there are lots of anecdotal accounts of another species, which I do have a sound clip of. And they reckon that that one you just heard can possibly deafen people, and it may actually be the loudest one. And this is um, this is a species called... The Empress Cicada, or Megopomponia imporatoria. Anecdotally, it's deafened people, but, you know, how much can you trust anecdotes? And <laughs> it's never been recorded in terms Maybe of decibels. broke all the equipment. <laughs> I mean, it may have done... But they reckon it might be lack of investigation into Southeast Asia that's Mm. just
0: caused it to not be recorded. And that goes, again, to show the difficulty in this category of we only have facts and figures for the ones which have been tested. And, you know, there could be species we haven't even described yet, let alone recorded out in the uh, less explored areas of of the Earth that could be significantly louder. But, wow, (laughs) that's that's one loud bug. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I turned it down for the audience, so when you listen to the
1: recording... Um, you hear it a lot uh, less loud than it is, because <laughs> when, I first, <laughs> well, when I first did it, it's a really
0: annoying noise. Like I, I can testify to this. I got woken up at sunrise every single morning when I was in Brazil by bloody cicadas <laughs> right outside my window. <laughs> Something else I was thinking about we might want to give an Insect Oscar for is the longest life cycle. okay. I've got something similar to this, but I'll let you go first. Okay, and kind of similarly to the biggest, is how do we measure this? Are we going mm. for the, the longest amount of time it takes to complete one iteration of the life cycle? Are we going for the longest single stage of a life cycle? Or are we going for the longest um, kind of individual that we've seen? So I have the longest life cycle as the larva of Buprestris lenta which has supposedly emerged after 51 years. 51 years? I think this is just one recorded larva. I was going to um, say, because like, <clears throat>
1: it sounds like it's been dormant for a long time, for 51 years. Yeah, like, yeah.
0: so I think kind of a more natural life cycle, should we say, where it's kind of been... Recorded regularly, okay. um, without any kind of significant, for what, as far as we can tell, kind of dormancy, would be, uh, of course, the 17-year cicada, oh, where okay. the larva, or the nymphs, I should say, uh, of these uh, live underground and feed on tree roots, and then every 17 years, the um, final larval instar comes up, mm. and then they close, usually on the side of a tree or something, yeah, and then the adults can go up. And uh, then that's when they make their noise.
1: Uh, David Attenborough did his Life in the Undergrowth, and he talked about them. These cicadas in the eastern United States spend seventeen whole years below ground, sucking sap from tree roots, and then, within a few days, a whole population emerges. Fifteen
0: years, so it just takes them that long to go through Seven, the Seventeen. 17, 17 sorry. which is it's quite kind of quite interesting because um, that. There was a paper looking at this Mm. and um, the different periods for the different periodic cicadas tend to be prime numbers. The theory from this paper uh, is that it's to do with predator avoidance and trying to decouple themselves from populations of predatory insects. I mean,
1: that would work.
0: I'm not going to wait around 15 years for my prey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of thing that's also quite hard to prove without a lot, a lot of data. And because it's so long, it's very difficult to I was going to gonna
1: get... say, you've got, you can do like three or four data points and then you die. <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not the most amenable to being mm. tracked by science, is it? But it's an interesting hypothesis. Diapause is essentially, like the name suggests, a sort of a pause in the development of an insect normally to overcome some sort of environmentally unfavorable condition, like winter or something like that. So I looked at what has the longest diapause recorded. Ah. The longest diapause ever recorded in an insect was 19 years, and that was a yucca moth. But these were artificially kept for that long, Uh and they just happened to emerge after that. So they had about 70% survival after nineteen years. And it's quite a hilarious paper because the guy who found this seems almost surprised because he's basically had these like in an incubator for since nineteen sixty whatever. And then in nineteen eighty it's like, oh these guys woke up. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so that is the longest recorded. But I don't think that's necessarily natural. Um, mm-hmm. that is just the longest recorded. So it's possible that many other insects could, if they were put under the right conditions, diapause for longer than that but this is the longest one we've recorded and eucamorphs seem to have quite a long diapause anyway. I wanted to give a shout out though to some other species that have like incredible diapauses. They're not insects unfortunately. If you know uh, water fleas, Daphnia, they uh, diapause as eggs so when they lay their eggs they uh, they just diapause until conditions are favorable um, and this can actually be done for hundreds of years. And because this can be done for hundreds of years, there's this whole sort of biology that sprung up around Daphnia called resurrection ecology. And basically, you can look through sediment cores from hundreds of years ago and resurrect the Daphnia that are then genetically identical to the ones that existed that long ago, and then do experiments on them. I just thought that was really cool. Also tardigrades. And They're not an insect. I don't even know what they are, but like, Water they, bears. yeah, they can diapause for hundreds of years as well, but just because they seem to be tolerant of f-ing everything,
0: as far as I can tell. I think I, I heard stories about them going up into the vacuum of space and coming back down and still being okay. So, <laughs> not technically insects, but we love them here, so we're going to put them in anyway.
1: <laughs> well, I might cut it out.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was looking at. The insect most tolerant of cold. And this was really cool. So, this is an African Chironomid, Polypidilum van der Planke, which um, is a type of Ditron, and it's the larva of this African Chironomid. And these guys can survive submersion in liquid helium wow. down to, that's minus 270 degrees. It's
0: to getting on towards absolute zero.
1: Yeah, that is. Insane, the thing was as well, their survival on this was about seventy percent. It was not just they survived That's like high. they survived yeah. quite well and they were fine and they went to their adult stage after i mean it 's an insane paper i 'll put it in the show notes basically, because these um, guys they exist in shallow pools in parts of Africa where it gets super super hot, and these pools dry out very regularly. Um, so these guys have to develop uh, the ability to overcome these really, really dry periods, really overcome desiccation. The lava they put in there were ones that were desiccated, but they were still okay because they can survive this desiccation. But because they're desiccated, they don't have any water in them, they can survive really, really low temperatures. So they survived minus 270 and they survived minus 190 for 77 hours. So they put them in at that 77 hours. So minus 270, a few minutes they can survive. Minus 190, 77 hours, which is crazy. And again, because of this whole desiccation resistance, they can also tolerate temperatures up to 102 degrees, which is crazy. And the reason that one's so crazy is most insects and most creatures really can't really survive anything above sort of 50 degrees just because all your enzymes and all your nature. proteins start to break down. So the fact that they can survive 102 degrees is just remarkable. Um, so yeah, I thought these guys were really cool. They can survive 102 degrees and be fine. And they can survive 200 degrees for five minutes.
0: Physiologist and he was getting quite excited. Well, no,
1: I, just, I couldn't even comprehend some of the stuff. Because another thing they did was they were able to resuscitate the insects when they'd been desiccated after 10 years. So they were left them desiccated for ten years,
0: then basically wet them, and then they were fine. <laughs> and it was just—it sounds like this lab has just been really neglecting their flies, <laughs> and they're just doing anything they possibly can to get them back. And <laughs> this is true. And to be fair, after ten mm-hmm. years of desiccation, they didn't survive long, uh-huh. but they did survive. Um, I'm almost imagining another kind of uh, Alexander Fleming moment when he just gave and just kind of leave the fly cultures <laughs> on the windowsill. So I was like, oh, no, they've dried out. Oh, i just put some moisture in in 10 years. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I mean, that might be what they've done because there's something <laughs> weird in the methods where they're like, yeah, we stored them over the calcium chloride for seven years and then at three years at room temperature. Um, <laughs> and I was like, why? <laughs> there's no explanation as to why. So, yeah, they can survive 10 years and sort of be okay. And they can survive 39 months as well in this desiccation state and be absolutely fine. Um, so yeah,
0: crazy, crazy, crazy tolerant insects. So um, we talked about the longest life cycle, so I think uh, naturally we could also think about what might be the shortest life cycle. And again, we have the same kind of issues as before. It's like, are we talking about the whole life cycle or are we talking about just one part of it? Because I think if you said to, to someone who maybe has a, a knowledge of insects, you say kind of what's the shortest lived insect everyone always instantly thinks to the mayfly yeah no that was my first thought mostly
1: because i think a budweiser (laughs) (laughs) advert
0: and this is right in terms of the briefest adult form and uh, Mm. there's some species such as uh, delania americana which the original form of the mayfly lives for less than five minutes after the final molt.
1: Five minutes. I mean, yeah. can it even mate in that time? Well, that's all <laughs> it
0: does. It mates and it lays her eggs, and that's it. Now, mayflies do have a preimaginal form, which mm. kind of looks a little bit like the adult, but it, they do actually molt again. Right. So um, it's not a normal eclosion from a from a nymph to an adult. It's, yeah. It is from a preimaginal form to the imaginal form. Yeah. But the, this final final stage is yeah less than five minutes.
1: That's insane. Less than <laughs> five minutes. I think a lot of insects, like their adult forms, aren't actually that long in comparison to their entire life cycle. So if we're looking at adult forms, I think we're not looking quite at the right thing there.
0: So what is the shortest life cycle overall? I have a mosquito, Sorophora conifinis, which can supposedly complete the entire life cycle in a week. In a week. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of a response to the kind of habitats that these organisms have evolved to Occupy. Yeah. Some of them can be quite ephemeral, they have to maybe in the puddles and stuff, which could dry up. Yeah. So, you know, you make hay while the sun shines, so you get as many larvae out there as you possibly can. But then I also have um, not the whole life cycle, but a whole stage, which isn't an adult stage, um, which is a type of aphid, Proplasothium <laughs> prunifolia, yeah. which has the shortest recorded generation time of 4.7 days at 25 degrees C. Now, the reason I've had to (laughs) say at 25 degrees C is, again, it's one of these complex things where insect life cycles will change uh, depending on the conditions, (laughs) temperature being an important driver.
1: So I had a category that I thought was uh, quite interesting. I was trying to find out the most toxic venom. Uh, I thought this one was quite interesting. This was, again, really hard to work out. So, the uh, University of Florida's Book of Insect Records, they have it down as Pogonomyrex maricopa, which is a type of harvester ant. And the reason they have this harvester ant down is they use use the concentration that it can kill 50% of mice they inject. LD50. Yeah, the LD50. And that is 0.12 milligrams per kilogram. And if you've ever seen a mouse, it's nowhere near a kilogram. So that is a tiny, tiny amount of venom that it needs to kill uh, a mouse. So they are very, very toxic. Um, but to be honest, it wouldn't do that much to a human. So I'm slightly mm. disappointed by it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it, again, it's kind of hard to get a standardized way of measuring venom potency. Exactly. Um, so the LD50s, typically how we assess the toxicity of chemicals. Um, yeah. But as I said, these harvest ants are very small and yeah. their venom glands are even smaller. So they're only going to be able to deliver a very small amount. So the potency doesn't necessarily correlate to how painful the sting no, is. No, no. And um, sting pain is quite interesting and it's something... Uh, which a guy called um, Justin Smith has looked a lot into. Yeah, um, I about may... this guy? <laughs> yeah, you, you may have heard of this guy. He's done some really interesting work. Um... Interesting and
1: sadistic. Yeah. No, so sorry,
0: masacre, he's doing it on himself. <laughs> yeah, so he works on venoms in Hymenoptera. And um, throughout his years researching, he's been stung. He's had the pleasure to have been stung <laughs> by a wide range of Insects, um, So he actually has conducted something called the Schmidt Pain Index of Insect Stings.
1: <laughs> I, I couldn't believe this when I was reading this, but yes. He... Yeah,
0: so he's endeavoured to catalogue and describe how painful all the stings he's had from different species are. Now, these are mostly Hymenoptera species, and these are mostly ants and, and wasps within that, uh, and mostly because of where he lives and where he works, they're kind of uh, neotropical yeah. or American stuff. But uh, this... He's ranked them on a four-star scale, where is one is least painful and four is the most painful to be stung by. And uh, there's only three groups which have been ranked with four stars. And I believe these are the um, Senoica wasp, which is a, um, a type of Palestine wasp which lives in neotropical America. I saw them when I was in Trinidad and the locals used to call them Seven Mile Jep. Jep is a word for wasp. And it's seven miles because they said you had to run seven miles before they stopped chasing you and stinging you. Oh, my God. So <laughs> and if you upset them, if you got too close to the nest or something, they drum on the nest and you could hear it from And it was quite scary. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, not to be messed with. The <laughs> second insect to have a four on the pain index is the Tranchilla hawk wasp. Oh, yeah. Which you get um, in, in America and in the, um, in the neotropics. And this uses its venom to paralyze tarantulas in which it lays its eggs because it's a, Pompili, it's a spider hunting wasp. The final and most painful of all is the bullet ant, of course.
1: Yeah, no, I got a quote from him and he says, It's pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. <laughs> so that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, one of my questions was, though... The fact he's been stung by over 150 insect species. What if he's just getting used to it, and like the scale is declining just because yeah. he's got just increased his uh, pain threshold because of all that's getting stung? Yeah, that's something I've wondered about as well. <laughs> because all this is self-tested, I think it's actually against the Geneva Convention to do this <laughs> on other, like, on people, even volunteers. <laughs> so you have to do it on yourself. And it's interesting as well. Like I found a study by a guy called Michael Smith, uh, who was very, sort of say, dismissive of Schmidt's pain index. And he said it was a kind of rubbish. So he made his own paper where he got stung himself, um, because apparently that's what you do when you're an entomologist who looks at <laughs> venom. He was looking at honeybee stings. And he looked at how the pain index differs based on body location. Like I say, it is entirely on himself. And the locations tested included the nipple, um, (laughs) the penis shaft, and the scrotum. And he tested 25 locations across the body uh, using the internal standard of his forearm. And he did all this for science. It was was a brilliant read, I must admit. I'm not quite sure why or how he published it. Um, But it's... Like the Method Statement, for example, has this hilarious statement where he said, I think it's okay because there's no policy on self-experimentation. And he's also not breaking the Helsinki Accords by doing it on himself. Oh, well, that's okay then. Yeah. (laughs) And there's also a pretty hilarious figure of all the different places he was stung that I will put in notes.
0: So I think as crazy and as mad that this sounds, um, in a way... It is quite useful research that, that someone has done. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are implications in the future for that can come from this work. So I wouldn't rubbish it necessarily because it is it is eccentric, for <laughs> sure. But um, we don't know what kind of useful thing, especially things like venoms can be quite interesting. Um, last year, there was a paper looking at the venom from a type of polybia wasp um, from Brazil. And they found that this venom is actually... Quite promising at uh, killing cancer cells.
1: I am a big fan of blue skies research. I like doing research for the sake of research, but I still find it hard to take <laughs> a paper seriously that has the sentence "I let the bee sting my penis
0: shaft." <laughs> uh, but and, met... Was this honeybees, Did you say
1: it was a honeybee? Yeah. Oh, so it's
0: also the honeybees are probably going to get the sting caught in the skin and die afterwards. So I feel a little bit bad for the for the girls.
1: I don't think it's the bees we have to feel bad for here.
0: I think it's time to move on to what is undoubtedly my favourite category. Oh, are we doing this one? I I, I know what are I think it's do. time. Um, the award for the most spectacular insect mating.
1: I thought you would. <laughs> I also looked at this one because... If you're going to do an insect award show, you need to include this.
0: Insect mating is bizarre, and it's varied. Oh yeah, definitely. You can find examples of all sorts of systems. So I've got some, first I've got some honourable mentions. (laughs) Okay, Um, okay. First of all is the bean weevil, uh, Callosobrucius maculatus. And the males of this species actually have a spiked penis, where they have actual spikes and hooks and nasty it almost looks like kind of some kind of medieval weapon when you look at it under the microscope that
1: sounds horrendous (laughs) And the purpose of
0: this is during copulation to damage as much as possible the female reproductive tract and the hypothesis for why we think they do this is because that makes mating very costly for the female so she won't want to mate too many times so right. <laughs> it, it's almost a form of... Uh, it's, it's male competition.
1: So I'm going to make this as terrible for you as possible so you'll never want to do it with any other male
0: again. Yeah, if, if they mate with a second male, they may well die. So <laughs> um, for the first <laughs> male, it's great because he's pretty sure that it's going to be his sperm which are going to be used to fertilise the eggs. And it's along this theory the uh this male competition and also sperm competition which is why in a lot of insects have these spectacular mating Then i use the word spectacular it could also kind of be um horrifying, horrifying especially yeah. for the female <laughs> uh, so another honorable mention is of course the bed bug the bed bugs undergo something called traumatic insemination
1: <laughs> what a fantastic name.
0: So, I wish I was a scientist who had <laughs> made Traumatic
1: Insemination.
0: So the male bedbugs have a habit of bypassing the female reproductive tract entirely and using a dagger-like penis, stab the female through the body of her abdomen and just inject the sperm directly into her body. It's along this same <laughs> idea that therefore it makes... Uh, multiple matings unfavourable for the female you're not kidding (laughs) but the female bedbugs have actually fought back in the evolutionary arms race and they've evolved uh, an organ on their abdomen which is an area of thickened cuticle so if they get stabbed or traumatically inseminated through this area it doesn't do so much damage yeah so the male will jump on and just start trying to jab away, and the female will kind of guide him to go through this specialised organ. Okay. So it's almost becoming a kind of alternative female reproductive area.
1: I heard uh, a runner-up as well. I found this really quite interesting. Uh, so earwigs of the family Anisolabididae have a spare penis. Uh, always <laughs> useful. I mean you say that but for a long time we actually thought it was vestigial because we're like it's pointing the wrong way there's no way you can get that in her. Um but through what is quite a hilarious and slightly horrifying experiment they found out it's a spare in case the first one gets broken off and they found this out by breaking off the other one um, <laughs> so I feel sorry for the poor earwigs who had their primary penis that's a weird sentence.
0: Um, <laughs> broken off, so they had to use their spare penis. Um, I mean, was this a, a hypothesis that they tested, or they just you know they'd break <laughs> off a penis one day and see what happens?
1: <laughs> I mean, I just imagine them sitting in a meeting room. It's like, oh, we need to do some science. We've got some earwigs. you so want to break off some penises. Let's do this thing. I, I can imagine that as a conversation. But uh, yeah, no, we thought it was for It turns out it's a spare one in case the first one gets damaged and. If mating gets interrupted, it will leave its penis behind and just walk off uh, to like save itself. So if you disrupt them during the mating, it'll be like, "Oh my god, I'm tri- someone's trying to eat me." Leave its penis behind, walk f- off, and then it's still got another shot at mating because it's got another penis. Live to mate another day. Yeah, and it sounded especially horrifying because earwig penises are about the length of the earwig, wow. so it's quite an enormous thing to then have broken off you. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't uh, maybe I'm anthropomorphising them too much but jeez I just felt for them I <laughs> think they're carrying two of these around with them all the time yeah I think we've kept people waiting for long enough we should move on to the winner of the most interesting sex life
0: and I think we're both going to say the same thing Should we, should we say it at the same time okay three, three two, two one, one honeybees bees. yeah <laughs> So, the male honeybee, also known as the drone, mates with the new queens uh, produced. So, when a, a new queen honeybee emerges from the hive, first of all, she may have to, well, fight off the other queens which have been produced with the royal jelly to the death. And then, it's the, always a good way to start your morning. <laughs> the winning virgin queen will fly off on something called a nuptial flight. Mm-hmm. And she'll do this once, and she'll fly around um, releasing pheromone. And the drones, the male honeybees, will smell this and begin pursuing her. Do you know what
1: that's called? Like, the pursuit of the drones after her? No. It's called a drone comet. Oh, wow. Which I thought was just the most amazing name for what? these drones chasing Beautiful down. Beautiful language. I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this drone comet chasing it. And I guess the idea is that the fastest and the fittest drones will catch up with her and then proceed to mate in flight with the not-so-virgin queen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the honeybee queen, she doesn't just do it once, does she? no. It's um I got it recorded up
0: to twenty four times, yeah, your mate. <laughs> and and the best part is that after each male catches up and mates with her, he then has what I can only describe as an explosive orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> um it's so loud that apparently it's audible to the human ear and sounds something like a pop like where and then the drone goes crashing down like a shot down spitfire to the ground. Whereby the next male jumps in and has his go. So this queen honeybee leaves a trail of broken and dying drones in her wake (laughs) before then starting her colony. And it's quite amazing that from just this one single flight, she will then store the sperm from these males and use those sperm for the rest of her life, which can be um, years and years.
1: Yeah, I think it's been recorded seven, eight years. Yeah, as as a maximum.
0: I mean, I think the average is somewhere about three or four, but even still... Imagine just one single fly storing all that sperm from... It's a hell of from, an afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll see in, in some honeybee colonies, the workers' progeny of the queen um, will look slightly different to each other, and it's from when she's used sperm from different fathers. Is it because the hymenopteran
1: and like, the males are inherently less valuable that they can get away with such like, an extraordinary mating thing? I can not really find why it's like this anywhere. Do you have any idea...
0: Uh, no, I don't know for sure. I, I assume, again, it's some kind of male competition where yeah. by um, exploding, they might hope to kind of um, block up the female or tire her out or something.
1: Oh, I did find out why that was. Yeah, no, it because um, basically it pushes the sperm in there better, so it's not a plug. Because a lot of people thought it was a plug like, mm. to prevent other males getting in there. But obviously, because she's not such a virgin 24 times, um, <laughs> that's not really
0: the case. So, yeah, it's actually to get the sperm up into her. <laughs> and not only do they explode, they, they actually do some kind of backwards somersault whilst they do this. Um, yeah, essentially, the male
1: passes out,
0: is paralysed
1: after the mating. So he just falls backwards to the ground and then proceeds to die. It's- horrendous and sort of beautiful at the same and time
0: definitely spectacular
1: did you ever read uh, the bees by lillian Paul?
0: no but i it's on my list
1: uh, you... it, it's a good thing to read and they describe this nuptial flight and they make it sound very beautiful <laughs> but at the same time all the males die <laughs> <laughs> so it's i think that's a good point to end the show i hope you've enjoyed the pilot episode of EntoCast. I've been Nick, and I've been Liam. We hope you listen again soon. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh,
0: press we, record. Should we press record to say like penis. <laughs>